0: Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to be in Genesis 15 today. So if you have your Bibles, flip over. But before I do that, I'll ask you, invite you to stand. Uh, In a Hebrew uh, tradition, there are two things before they approach the text. One is they stand to be able to recognize the difference between the speaker's words and the words of the Lord. So we stand as we approach the text. And number two is we recite the Shema. The Shema comes from uh, Deuteronomy 6. It's a way in which we recommit ourselves To one another before we approach the text, and it's done with passion. It's to say, God, we give you everything, we give you our heart, we give you our soul, we give you our mind, so that you can fill us up with what you want to say today. So say it after me, the Shema after me. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, amen. These are the very words of God Genesis, chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is a of Damascus? And Abram said, "'You have you have given me no children, "'so a servant of my household will be my heir.' "'Then the word of the Lord came to him, "'This man will not be your heir, "'but a son who is your own flesh and blood "'will be your heir.' "'He took him outside and said, "'Look up at the sky and count the stars, "'if indeed you can count them.' "'Then he said to him, "'So shall your offspring be.' "'Abram believed the Lord, "'and he credited it to him as righteousness.' He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought these things to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, "'Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions.'" You, however, will go into your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Have you ever been in a situation in which you knew you were going to fail before you began? Have you ever been in that? There are different areas in, our, in my life that I, I see this absolutely come to... One of which is a family obligations... There are times my family, uh, we have a big extended family in Rochester, and a long time ago they decided instead of like doing individual birthdays that took up a lot of time, that we were going to do these like mega blowouts once a quarter in which everyone who had a birthday in that quarter we'd celebrate and bring presents to and everything. And that sounds like a good idea in theory, but when it actually happens in every three months it feels like Christmas because you get all these people who all are bringing presents. And so it's like doing Christmas like five times a year. It's a, it's a little much. And there are times during, this, uh, during these quarter birthdays where like our kids are spent or one of them is sick and they're just on the verge of being able to go and we'll decide to go and we'll be driving. And my wife Molly and I, will look at each other and we'll be like, this is going to be a disaster. Like this is not, this is not. And we like give each other like, like how do we get out early? And we make like strategies for like, how do, how do we get out of this? Like do we have something we can say? Or we do code words or signs like abort, we got to go sort of stuff. But you just know going into it, this is going to be a massive failure. Like this is going to be bad. Have you ever gone on a family vacation and as soon as you stepped foot, you knew like this is like you looked at the weather report or you looked, you walked in and you were like, this is not going to work. My wife and I, when we were uh, before kids, our family, the same extended family, convinced us to go on this Adirondack vacation. They said, we're going to take this huge, we're going to rent this huge uh, uh, mansion, and everyone's going to get their own room and their own space, but we're going to go hiking, and we're just going to play games, and we're going to have a good time. Molly and I were like, okay, that, that might work. But one thing we said was absolutely everyone needs to have their own space. Like, everyone needs to have their own room that they can go to and they can shut the door if they just need to get away from the masses. Like, that's a stipulation of ours if we're going to go. And they're like, okay. And so they found a place and they went online and they found a place. and We got it. We should go. So we said yes. We pulled in. And just looking at the place, we're like, this is not a seven-bedroom house. Like, this, <laughs> this is, and we walk in. And let's just say the definition on the website of what a bedroom was is a lot different than our definition of a bedroom. We walked around and we said, this many people in this space is not gonna work. But we were in too deep at that point. Molly and I ended up sleeping in bunk beds in the family room where everyone hung out next to my brother and his girlfriend on adjacent bunk beds. It was like the four peas in a pod all in our bunk beds in the common area, which means we had to be the last one to go to sleep and we had to be the first one to get up in the morning. I was woken up every day to my cousin exercising in spandex. Let's just say it wasn't a great experience. And sure enough, just the family dynamics and just putting people in spaces like that for too long, like it was the worst vacation we have ever been on. And we vowed even right then, like we are never going on an extended family vacation Ever again, an era is over. We are done. But we knew walking in that this was going to be bad. We knew it would fail from the very beginning. Now my wife and I are planning like new vacations, and what do we do? And one thing we want to do is camping. Like, wouldn't it be great if we became a camping family? I grew up doing camping, so let's get our kids involved. Now the Wilsons, uh, Pastor Milo and Aaron, they're a camping family. They know how to camp, and they told us. Now, just so you know, when you start camping just at the beginning, know it's going to be horrible. Like, it's just going to be so bad at the beginning. Molly said that Aaron just like sat her down and was like, camping's good, but just like the first couple times, it's just going to be a disaster. Like, just know going into it, it's going to be really bad, and then they'll start to get used to it and know it's, it's good. But we all have these situations where it's just like, you go, know going in, this is going to be a di- nightmare, this is going to be a disaster. Students uh, who are in, in the room this morning, you got a test coming up. Have, have you ever been in a test where you went into it and you were like, yeah, this is gonna be bad. Like this is, this, yeah, we got, I, I'm surprised there's, uh, there's some students admitting that in, in front of their parents this morning. But yeah, like I have gone into tests and just like, Lord have mercy on my soul. I hope C is the answer to everyone because I don't know what I'm doing. And usually when you walk into these situations, uh, it's really like, it's hard at first, but then like enough time goes by and the pain and the wounds have healed enough that you can look back and be like, and you smile, and you go that you know, I, we, I think we all have them, our family excursions, family vacations, family situations where you just, you knew it was going to be bad, and it was. That's sort of life sometimes, is that you just know going in, you're going to fail before you even begin. Now, as we're going through the long story short of the Bible, we are introduced to a man who knows he was going to fail before he even began. But the stakes were much higher. Let's set the stage. Meet Abram. Now, later, Abram is known as Abraham. For our sake and just for clarity this morning, we're going to stick with Abram. Abram is one of the most significant figures in the Bible. If you remember two weeks ago in Genesis 3, we talked about the fact that God revealed in that proto-evangelium, the first gospel, how he was going to fix this mess that humanity had put themselves in. He said that one day, the serpent was going to bruise the heel of the woman, that throughout generations, that this sin and this curse was going to bruise the heel of the woman and of her offspring, but eventually, Somewhere down the line, her offspring, someone would come through her offspring and would crush his head. That someday a Messiah, the one, the crusher of snakeheads would come through a lineage, through a line, through some family line that eventually would come and bring, and bring healing, bring peace, bring restoration, crush evil once And for all. And so God was looking in this section, in this early part of Genesis, he's looking for his line and his lineage. He's looking for that person. He's looking for that that line, that family heritage that he could pick and say, this is the offspring. This is the path I'm going to choose that someday, uh, down passing from generation to generation, someone would come from this line who would crush the serpent's head. And God chooses Abraham or Abram here in our story to be the start of this heritage. That it's going to be you, Abram. I've chosen you to be the offspring. And that through your line, through your lineage, through your heritage, a Messiah would come. And if you remember, uh, one week ago in Genesis 11, Milo alluded to the fact that when you look at the genealogies and the location, location, it's fair to say, and it's more than likely, as I've looked at it as well, that Abram lived in the time period of the Tower of Babel. So we looked at the Tower of Babel and how people were building this thing to make a name for themselves. And it was built on slave labor. It was built on all the things that we talked about, the curses that we talked about two weeks ago. This this tower represented all the things that had gone wrong with humanity to make a name for itself. And it's more than likely that not only did Abram live in the time period of the Tower of Babel. It's more than likely he lived in the same location. Which means this tower would have been in his backyard. He would have absolutely known about it. He probably would have seen it if it was big enough and and, and prominent enough. It probably was in his backyard. And so at the start of his story in chapter 12, the Lord tells him to go. Go. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Go from your country, go from your people, go from your father's household to the land I will show you. Get out of there. I am choosing to have a new line, a new lineage through you. You will be the one through whom I will bless the nations and that the Messiah would come. God tells him to go and leave his tower. So Abram goes on a journey, and the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14 tells the story of Abram building a new life for himself, away from the tower. Building a new life that is capped off with Melchizedek, who we looked at when we were in our Hebrew series. Ever remember Melchizedek? So at the end of chapter 14, Melchizedek blesses Abram blesses his journey, blesses where he's come from and says, you're ready. And Abraham makes a new commitment to the Lord. And it's this beautiful ceremony that they do together. It's sort of the apex and the pinnacle of Abram's journey away from the tower, away from his former life and into a new way of living, into a new lineage and a new heritage of faith. And then we get to Genesis 15. Abram has arrived. He's made it, and he's ready for the things God had promised him. You see, during his journey, God promises him twice that he will receive two things. He would receive land, and he would receive lineage. That he would receive a place to go, and he would receive a people through him and his generations that would fill it up. Now, in that culture, land represented way more than just a physical plot of dirt— Land represented security. It gave you position and protection. The land provided your family for generations. The land was your shield. And your lineage was deeply connected to who you are. It was deeply connected to your identity. It was who passed down your name and who received the fruit of your labor when you died. Children were your great reward. And God had promised him both. Go, and through you, I will set my plan in motion, and I will bless you, and I will give you land, and I will give you lineage, and you will be a great uh, father of the nations. In fact, Abraham means father of of the multitudes. That's what his name means. But in verse 1, God says, Again, picture, he's, he's, he's done it, he's won, he's had his ceremony, everyone's cheered him on, Melchizedek's there, and yes, you've done it, and he makes this commitment, and he's arrived. And then God says to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your great reward. Now, this frustrates Abram. Abram has left his tower and everything else behind. He has gone on this long journey and been faithful to God throughout. What do you mean you're my reward? I have a reward coming. Remember you promised me several times on the trip? So yeah, that's nice and all, but uh, show me the money is basically what Abram's saying. Let's, uh, I, I made it. I did it. I said yes to you. It's, it's time to pay up. And God says to him, I will be your shield. I will be your great reward. Abram has some serious questions for God now. And in the middle of this passage, Abram kind of uh, does a little bit of an interrogative work on God. He wants to get to the heart of this thing. And so he asks two major questions. You'll find these questions in your fill out this morning. He asks God two questions. And I think we'll find that these are deeper questions than appear on the surface. These are questions that we ask ourselves. The first question is this. what can you give me? God says, I'll be your great shield. I'll be your great reward. And the very next verse, in verse 2, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is a liaison of Damascus? What can you give me? In a sense, Abram's saying, are you kidding me? I just gave up everything. You are my reward? I have no future. And not only that, but what I do have is going to go to my servant because I have no one to pass it down to when I'm gone. What do you mean? What can you give me? Something interesting in the Hebrew that's interesting here. Notice then he says, so it says in verse 2, but Abram said, and then he makes his complaint. And then the very next verse, in verse 3, it says again, and Abram said, Now, in the Hebrew, whenever it says, and -and so-and-so said, it's always the start, it's always an indication to the reader that it's the start of a new conversation. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for it to say, and Abram said, and he makes his complaint. And then the very next verse, it says, and Abram said, and he makes the very same complaint, just with a little more bite to it. And what the implication here is that Abram makes his complaint and the Lord ignores him. He doesn't answer him. If he had answered him, if they were carrying on a conversation, there'd be no need in verse three for it to say again, and Abram said. So what the the, the little hint that the the author is trying to give us is that God ignores Abram's request. Have you ever, parents, have you ever ignored a whiny child? I'm hungry, thirsty, give me this. Or it's just, it's got a little bit of bite to it and you're just like, nope, not gonna do it right? I'm not driving the ambulance. Not doing that. I'm not serving cheese with that wine. We're not doing it, right? And, they, and then it gets—what's interesting is that oftentimes it gets bitier when you don't respond, and that's exactly what we see in the text. In verse 3, he makes the same complaint, but there's a little bit more bite to it. So in verse 3, he says, uh, and Abram said, you have given me no child or children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. He like cuts to the point. Like the first one is a little bit more like, let me describe the situation, God. And God ignores him. And so the second time around is not so nice. You have given me no children, so my servant of my household will be my heir. And God, I can imagine just going, oh, sweet Abram. <laughs> oh, you. And so God responds. God responds. And he reiterates his plan to Abram. He tells Abram that his land will come. And his descendants will come. He even takes him outside and says, look at the stars, Abram. Remember the ones I created? Remember that? Let's just remember who you're talking to. Your land will come. Your lineage will come. But for now, you need to learn to let me be your shield and your great reward. You see, Abram, I'm doing something through you. I'm doing something powerful through you. And in order for your line and your lineage to carry forth, I'm going to need to bless you. I'm going to need to supply you with your needs. I'm going to need to give you land. I'm going to need to give you uh, numerous children so that they can bless and, and grow into a great nation that will show everyone in the world who I am. I need to give you these things and these resources in order for my plan to go through you. But before I do, I need to make sure that even when you get them, I will be your shield and your great reward. I will be your shield and your great reward. And to credit Abraham, he accepts this answer. He accepts this answer. He trusts the Lord, he believes, and it is credited to him as righteousness. He believes the Lord, and it's credited to him as righteousness. They reach an understanding. But there's one more question, and it's a deep question, and it's a question we all ask. Even though Abraham believes, we see it, it says it in the text, he believes, he's all in, it's credited him to righteousness, but there is still a nag, there's still an ache, there's still a doubt, there's still a wrestling in his soul. And he asks one more question. How can I know? How can I know? Verse 8. And it's a question we all ask how god can i know so god in his infinite wisdom tells him to go get a heifer a goat a ram a pigeon and a dove okay (laughs) now in the ancient near east what's happening is they're about to engage in what's called a covenant a covenant When two parties came together and reached an understanding like Abram and God has done here, they would seal it with a covenant. And covenants were an an agreement between two parties that had its own terms, benefits, and consequences. Let me walk you through just a few differences because when we hear the word covenant, we sometimes interchange that with uh, an agreement or uh, uh, different uh, contracts or a pact or a treaty. Or We try to put it into our world and try to understand kind of what this covenantal agreement was. And the reality is, is that we have nothing in our, uh, except for one thing that we'll talk about a little later. We only have one thing that really truly uh, grasps this type of arrangement and agreement. See, we're used to contracts, and we're used to handshakes or pacts or treaties, but a a covenant differed in some substantial ways. Take a look at your uh, fill-in. Number one, a covenant was relational. Highly, highly relational. In Abram's world, covenants were made daily to define and describe the relationships of one another. It just completely, and so it was was a way in which I knew how I connected with you. It was a way in which I knew how we related to one another. Now, I just got some work done in my backyard. And so I asked a few people around and got some names and got a few quotes and then picked someone. And then that guy came and he helped kind of shape and, and grade our backyard. And we kind of entered into a contract in order to do that. And then he did the work and then I paid him and then that was it. There was no understanding that we would have any type of relationship once the work was done, right? If I called him up now and said, hey, Joel, uh, want to go get a coffee? He'd be like, uh, what? Yeah, I mean, you did my backyard, and so, you know, now we're bonded forever. Uh, click. <laughs> See, for us, our arrangements mostly are, are not relational are not uh, Friendships are different than our contracted arrangements in business. But in the, in the Eastern world, in the ancient Near East, these were blended. You made arrangements with people that you knew, you trusted, you were bonded together. The fundamental difference between a covenant and other arrangements and agreements is the relationship established between the covenant makers. Covenanted parties viewed themselves as friends who were bounded together Permanently permanently. Number two, a covenant was unequal. When we make arrangements, we see it as two equal parties that have different needs and wants and that we can somehow come to arrangement for the betterment of both parties. Covenants by and large were unequal. It was one person coming in, usually a king, usually a conquering king would come and conquer a region and then come before the lesser king, the king that was beaten, and say, hey, let's get into a covenant and here's how it's going to go down. And the lesser king had no say. The lesser king had no uh, uh, wiggle room, no negotiating power at the table. The king would come in, lay his covenant before him, and say, take it or leave it. Become my vassal. Serve under me. And so large part covenants were unequal in the ancient Near East. It was one party coming in saying, I want to do this, will you agree to it? And then that party either said yes, and they were now friends, and they were now partners, or they said no, and they lived in tension and enmity between one another. But covenants were unequal. And it showed the great power and supremacy of the conquering side. And number two, or number three, covenants were cut. You wouldn't say back then, we're going to make a covenant. You'd always say, I'm going to cut a covenant. This is where the heifer and the goat and the ram and the pigeons and the dove come in. Cutting symbolized by the slaughtering of the animals, the indication that each person in the covenant promised to give his or her life in order to keep it. To break a covenant was to invite one's own death as the penalty. This is how serious covenants were. These were not flippant arrangements. Yeah, yeah, I might get to this. When you cut a covenant, you would literally slaughter an animal or two or whatever the covenant called for. And the symbolic nature was it, is that if I broke this covenant, may what we're seeing before us be done to me if I am to break the terms of this covenant. And so Abram says, how will I know? And God says, get the animals. It's time to make a covenant. God enters real life. Really, the amazing part is that God enters real life and uses a culturally defined arrangement in covenants to answer Abram's deepest questions. The promise they are making making is deeply personal, is supremely established, and is life-threateningly serious. And so Abram gets the animals. And what the text says is that he cuts them in half and arranges them on opposite sides to each other. Now notice, God didn't command him to do that. Abram already knows exactly what's going on, because this was a commonly practiced thing in the world of covenants. They are setting up what's called a blood path covenant. It's a specific type of covenant that was done in this day called the blood path covenant. I have a picture here to just kind of visualize what it would look like. You take uh, uh, the animals and you get them on a slope, and you would literally cut them in two, and you'd put the pot pieces on each side of one another. And as the blood ran out from the animals, it would flow to the middle and down. It would literally create a path of blood. Hence the blood path, or the blood path covenant. This covenant is a sign that is often used in Abram's day to signify an engagement and wedding. <laughs> Happy wedding! So those very animals in an engagement and wedding ceremony were used, cut in half, and arranged on opposite sides of the slope. And the two parties that were involved primarily in a wedding ceremony was the father of the bride and the future groom. Now the father of the bride was, because covenants are unequal, the greater party. He had the daughter, and you had to convince him to give up the daughter. He was the greater party. The groom was the lesser party. And so what would happen is that the future groom would take a cup of wine and offer it to the bride and say, this cup I offer to you. In effect, he was saying, I love you. I offer you my life. Will you marry me? Now, if she drank it, she accepted his life and gave him hers. Then the future groom would put on a white robe and in front of the father of the bride walk through the blood path. And as he walked through and the blood would splash on his sandals and splash up on that white robe, it was to signify that if any way I were to hurt your daughter, I was to abuse your daughter, if I were to abandon your daughter, if in any way I will not treat her the way you have treated her, may this be what you can do to me. Now when I asked Molly's hand in marriage from her father-in-law, I am very thankful he did not make me walk in a blood path. <laughs> yeah, sure, Brian, let's, uh, let's go over here and uh, get the animals cut up. But what he did say to me, the very first words out of his mouth, words, divorce is not an option. And what he meant by that is, if you abuse her, if you hurt her, if, some, if you abandon her, if you are not 100% in this and willing to give your life for this, then I do not say yes. So he didn't make me walk through a blood path, but he got it. When we were, uh, uh, the day of our wedding, uh, Molly has three brothers. Her youngest brother, Tim, was 12 years old at the time. And I'll never forget, we were, it was the reception and we were having a good time and dancing and having, uh, enjoying ourselves. And uh, little 12-year-old Tim came up to me and kind of pulled at my shorts. He was, he was, pulled at my shorts. And I reached down and he just said, hey, Brian, I want you to know that I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad uh, that you're going to be part of our family. But if you hurt her, I will kill you. I was like, okay, Tim, thanks. Now, that's cute when Tim is 12. Tim has grown up and become a police officer. <laughs> and that threat 10 years ago uh, takes on a new life and meeting now for me now. She has family and brothers that are very much invested in seeing their sister thrive. She has a father that is very invested in seeing her, fa- her, her daughter, his daughter, thrive. And so they walk the blood path. And that white robe then was, uh, you kept symbolically as a reminder of the covenant that you have set. You see, what we see here is God getting engaged to Abram. In effect, God says, Will. You marry me. This was common. Abram knows exactly what to do. He's been to weddings before. Abram, I'm going to give you it. But I want you to be my reward. I want you to be my shield. Here's the cup. Will you drink it? Will you marry me? So the sage is set. The halves are arranged. But there's one more problem. Whose move is it? Who is the lesser party? Who walks between the pieces? Abram does. That's what you do. But Abram knows that he will never be able to keep his end of the covenant. God asks to be his shield and his reward, but Abram knows in his heart and knows that he could never meet those terms. In fact, Abram breaks the covenant only two verses later in chapter 16. Two verses later, Abram has already broken The story actually gives us an interesting detail in that he chases away the birds, or in other translations, the vultures. If you notice in the text, it says, Abram, which seems like a throw in line, but what it's supposed to tell us is that he's cut these pieces for a long time. He's been sitting there frozen for a while to the fact that the birds have already come down and are starting to pick at the carcasses. Abram freezes. He knows that if one toe hits that blood, he is a dead man. He knows he will fail before he even begins. And so God puts him in a deep sleep. And while Abram is greatly distressed and troubled, the text tells us that Abram sees a flaming torch and smoking pot... Pass between the halves. Now, in the Bible, fire and smoke always symbolize the presence of God. Think the pillar of fire and smoke in the wilderness, or think of Pentecost. So, what happens? God passes between the pieces. God passes through the pieces. God says, I know you'll fail. You're a dead man. You can't keep this. What I'm asking of you is way beyond what you can handle. I'm asking that through you, you will be the father of multitudes, and that through that, the offspring of the woman, the crusher of snakes, will come. That the offspring of the woman, through you, will be the Messiah that will save the world. You cannot handle this. So I'll pass through. And if this covenant is broken, It'll be on me. And two verses later, it's already broken. I'm moved by this story. Because Abram's story is our story. And his questions are our questions. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we close. God will call us to go and leave our towers our towers of protection and provision, our towers that make a name for ourselves. He will tell us to go. And we will ask, God, what can you give me? And his answer, I will give you myself. I will be your shield and your great reward. And like Abram, God will ask us to do things that will directly affect our perceived protection and provision in order to learn, in order to rely, in order to be certain. That God, above everything else, above all the resources he might give you in order to establish and complete his mission for your life, he will be absolutely certain and wants to be absolutely certain that above all the resources he might give to you, that in the end, he is your shield and your reward. Because it's easy to look at the resources we've been given in order to complete the task God has before us and see them as the thing themselves. And so God says, run from your tower. Friends, what is your tower? Your job, your title, your position, your paycheck your square footage, your influence, your control, your uh, your security. Where is God saying, go? And where are you asking God, what can you give me? Because God has an answer. Myself. I will be your great reward. I will be your shield. What have we been putting in place and in front of God and saying, God, I'm going to rely on that. God, I'm going to make that my thing. I'm going to run to that tower for my protection. And God is saying, run. And God will ignore our cries and our whines. And then God will remind us again why he created us he will remind us again what our purpose is he will remind us again who we are we are his children his love children and he is our great shield and reward and we will believe it and it will be credited to us as righteous but there is still the nagging question still to go the one that we can't get out of our heads the ones that we wrestle with and keep us up at night it's God how do I know How will I know it'll be okay? How will I know you'll be there? How will I know that you'll keep your end of the bargain? And the answer is the same. Because I gave you myself. I'll walk through the blood path. And as your journey weighs you down, as you pick up the pieces of your life, I'll pass through the pieces. Actually, do you really want to know? You won't keep your end of the bargain at all. You will fail before you begin. You won't let me be your shield and reward. Your eyes will fixate on your towers, and so I will shed my blood to be the absolute sure that our relationship will endure, that the covenant will be fulfilled. And on a night 2,000 years ago, God kept his end at the bargain. Take a look. In Matthew it says this, then Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he had given it to them saying, drink it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins will you marry me you see jesus wants you he wants a relationship with you he doesn't establish an edict as a distant ruler but a covenant as a close friend he is the greater party the creator of the universe this is not an equal arrangement but chooses to cut the covenant with his blood Jesus walks through the pieces to answer our deepest questions. How will I know? What can you give me? And Jesus says, I'll give you myself. So if you're standing at the tower, God is calling you to go. He will be your shield and your great reward, but you need to go. If you're on the journey and asking, what can you give me? Believe that he is enough. And if you're asking, how can I know? We know because he passed through the pieces. Let's pray. God, there's some of us here this morning that are on the brink, that might have been coming for a while or exploring you, but just can't quite get their finger off the tower can't quite give up the things that have wrapped them up, that have caught their eye. And so God, if if there are those here this morning that need to just break from their tower and go on this journey with you, God, may they choose today to go. God, there's some here that are just wrestling with the things and the resources and the possessions of their lives and they know they are entrapped and entangled with things that are not of you or trapped and entangled with things that are resources you've given them but you have made them idols in your eyes and in their eyes and they ask god what can you give me may they trust that you are better that you satisfy that you will be their great shield and their great reward. And all these things will be added as well. But God, for us, who still wrestle and doubt and ache and wonder and say, God, are you sure? How do I know? Is it gonna be okay? And you say in your text, know for certain, know for certain that I will do what I say. Help us to trust and know and celebrate and name and recognize and celebrate that while this was unequal, you walked, you passed through the pieces. And that your name is great, that your name is beautiful, that your name is above all names. And so, Lord, as we just celebrate and sing, what a beautiful name it is, Jesus. The name of Jesus, the crusher of snakes, the passer between the pieces, the sustainer, the satisfier, the great reward. My shield in the storm. It's the name of Jesus the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus.